Most life on Earth hasn't been named yet, or even described and acknowledged in any way. But that doesn't mean these unknown species aren't important. Their very existence is significant, because they're living things just like us, and because they're part of something bigger. They're part of systems, of natural communities. I'm Jill Riddell, and this is The Shape of the World. Nearly 10 years ago, I had this idea that I was going to take it upon myself to discover a species new to science. In another episode of The Shape of the World, I talked about that adventure with Greg Mueller, a scientist with whom I did, in fact, help find something new, a species of mushroom native to Chicago. But before mushrooms, there was this person I met who had discovered an extraordinary number of new species, and whose life work was to understand how species interact with their environment, to really explain a lot about the shape of the world. I'm Larry Haney. I am Nagani Curator of Mammals at the Field Museum. I'm an evolutionary biologist. Larry worked in the same city I live in, not five miles away from my house, at the magnificent Field Museum in Chicago. And it turned out Larry had discovered and named several new species of furry, bright-eyed, sociable, intelligent animals. So, for about three years, I took every chance I had to follow him around the museum. I had so many questions about how a person could possibly discover a mammal living among us here on Earth that somehow had evaded the notice of every single other person ever. Despite my awestruck questioning, Larry was, and remains, ever the scientist in his response. We've formally described at this point, I think, somewhere between 35 and 40 new species. We have another 25 or 30 that we are certain of at this point. And I'm not sure how many more there are beyond that, maybe another 20 or 30. Wow. Those numbers have gotten bigger even since the last time I spoke with you. Right, right. It just, yeah, keeps going up. And many of those are from one island. And that is? Luzon Island. It's the biggest island in the country. I do most of my research in the Philippines. Um, it's where Manila's located. It's a little bit smaller than Cuba, if that helps to put it into context. What was it like the first time you went to the Philippines as a biologist? The habitat has almost a magical quality to it. The trees are covered with moss, sheets of it hanging down, the trunks, the branches, often the leaves have moss growing on them. The ground is often covered with moss. A tree that is two or three feet in diameter at the trunk may only be 12 feet tall. The branches go out, not up. Any biologist would be stunned to see this habitat. There's just so much diversity of life, so conspicuous. It's just wonderful. And you're walking along on the ground over the top of a layer of one or two or three feet of, of what feels almost like natural sponge. So as you walk along, it's soft under your feet. And if you stand in one place and you kind of bounce up and down, the trees around you bounce with you. <laughs> it's just this bizarre, cool habitat, completely different than anything I'd ever seen. And were you ready to collect? Did you have the permits so that you oh, were yeah. there and you were ready to go? And yep. you just went and yep. did it that, that first time you were there? Yep, yep. Started setting traps, started catching all these really bizarre animals. It was really, really hard initially to figure out 
how to trap them. There's a skill set involved in a lot of the research that people do that you don't ever hear about. In our case, it's figuring out if you don't know what lives there, you don't know what they eat, you don't know if they live on the ground or up in the trees, how do you catch them? Right. That's one of the first things that a hunter tries to figure out, or what are their patterns? What are they doing? But if you don't even know what your target is, yeah. it makes it really tough. <laughs> so, so one of my favorite stories from that is that on this mountain, uh, there had been someone who had been there, a Philippine biologist, in the 1960s. And he had caught one individual of this really bizarre mouse. We sometimes refer to them as being tweezer-beaked. They have this extremely elongate snout with tiny, tiny, tiny little incisors way out at the tip, tiny little mouth. So you'd only ever seen it as a museum collection. Right. One specimen in existence in the world. So what do you do with the body that looks like that? I mean, how does this animal make a living? Right. What's it going to eat? So we spent a month on that mountain and didn't catch a one. We knew they were there, and the habitat was in good shape. No reason to think that they disappeared. Well, one day, one of the guys took a live trap and found a burrow entrance up against the side of a, of a hill and kind of pushed the mouth of this live trap up against the burrow so the mouse couldn't come out without going into the trap. So he caught it, and it was one of these tweezer-beaked mice, brought it back to camp, and of course, everybody was just you know, extremely <laughs> excited uh-huh. about this great little animal. We tried feeding it snails, didn't want those. We tried seeds, we tried fruit, we tried dried mangoes, we tried rice, cooked rice, uncooked rice. We would hold it out and it would jump across the cage and sniff at it and look disappointed (laughs) and go back over to its little nest. So after 24 hours of this, it was pretty clear that it was hungry, it was not happy. At that point, one of the guys kicked over a rock next to the table in camp where this was. And there was an earthworm underneath. And he picked it up and held it out to the side of the cage. And this little mouse leapt across the cage, grabbed it away from him, stuck its teeth at one end of the worm, (laughs) shucked the dirt off with its other paw, and swallowed it whole. (laughs) These animals are primary vermivores. They eat earthworms. It's like, okay, we are ready to go. That tweezer-beaked mouse that Larry described happened to be caught in a live trap. But Larry and his team do use traps that humanely kill animals, too. When I met Larry, one of the first things he asked me was whether I understood that researching an organism well enough to know whether it was the same or different from another species required the capture of animals and the taking of specimens. Larry was worried I'd be alarmed. Or maybe he was leery of my intentions and thought I might get indignant that scientists sometimes kill the subjects they're studying. Larry and his team do this selectively, carefully. They follow an ethical code. For science to advance, we have to know the individual parts. And someone has to be charged with examining animal species up close. That's Larry. So I'm interested in the extent of biological diversity that exists in the world. We talk about there being somewhere between six and eight million species likely to be present alive today. The Philippines has more unique species of mammals per square mile than any other country in the world. My basic research question is why? Why there? Why not somewhere else? What are the conditions that are so unusual there? 
So I started working in the Philippines in 1981 and went with the idea that the mammal fauna there was pretty well known and that over the course of five years, I would be able to add a few more data points and be able to statistically document the pattern that I thought was there. And by data points, you just mean that you would probably find some of the same mammals that are already known from the island, but you would find them in new locations. So so one of the things that has been documented is that there's usually a strong correlation between the, the area that you consider, and particularly the size of an island, and the number of species that live on that island. So we thought we knew how many species were on Luzon. Because there was work that had already been done. Starting you weren't the first person. It, yeah, much mm-hmm. of it starting in the 1890s. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this had been going on for quite a while. Um, what we didn't have was good information from the smaller islands. So we started out working on the smaller islands and, and were pretty successful with that. And we decided that we needed to have a little more information about what was on particularly Luzon, which is the largest island in the country. And we needed to have specimens um, that had really good information, good locality information, all of the kinds of standard information that we want to have with mammal specimens these days. So some of the uh, finds that other people had made had been in earlier times, so they weren't terribly well documented. You didn't have things like GPS coordinates for where they were found. Right. Uh, we often didn't have precise locality information. We didn't know anything about that. The habitats that, w- that they were in, we didn't know whether they lived on the ground or up in the trees. We didn't know what they ate. And these days, particularly, critically importantly, we didn't have any tissue samples for DNA studies. Okay. So we went to a mountain down in the southern part of Luzon um, and did a thorough uh, transect survey there in 1988. And we're surprised to find that clearly as we went up higher into the mountain, there were more and more species of mammals. Not, Which was exactly not, the opposite of what you would have expected. It was not what we expected. It was, it was not fewer. It was more. So we scratched our heads over that one for a while and thought, well, huh, this is an odd mountain. One of the things that I learned in graduate school and then an awful lot of people continue to hear is that maximum biological diversity is in the lowland tropical rainforest. That was what was in the textbooks. That was what I was taught in graduate school. That's what many people continue to think. Well, okay, so at that point, uh, we scratched our heads some more and later on decided that we needed to go up into the mountains up in northern Luzon, uh, the biggest mountain range with the highest mountains, where the most distinctive mammals had been described previously, mostly from the late 1890s. Only a couple of specimens, no tissue samples for DNA studies, very little about the ecology of the animals. So you went there, and was that first mountain an oddball? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, clearly not. Uh, This was not what we or anybody else expected. So at that point, we've got two mountains that show a similar pattern of increasing diversity as we went up in elevation. And the taller mountain had more of them than the lower mountain. So we're beginning to see maybe there's another pattern. It's not just a mountain, but how high is the mountain? How much montane habitat is there? 
So all the other biologists in the world are still thinking this other thing about the lowlands. You're starting to see this. Did you start having conversations with other biologists sure. about this anomaly? Yeah, yeah. You say to somebody who's doing some work somewhere else, you know, we're, here's what we're finding. We're seeing this increase in diversity as you go up in elevation. This is not what's supposed to happen. Are you seeing anything like this? And many of the responses was, well, I, I have no idea. We haven't looked at that. But a few people said, huh, huh, that's interesting. The most interesting, important words in science are, oh, that's interesting. Is there some sort of a metaphor that you think of in regard to your work or some sort of frame for it that you compare it to? Well, I love doing the work. Um, it, to me, it's it's... It's, it's an enormous puzzle. We're trying to piece together pieces of a puzzle about the world. And we don't know what the photograph looks like. We just have pieces. And we know that we probably don't have all of the pieces. And we're trying to put all the pieces of the puzzle together so that we can understand. So, Larry, can you say a little bit to me about what it's been like for you to live life as a scientist? You're steeped in rational thought. You're schooled in the scientific method. How has being a scientist affected the person that you are? I think you just described it in pretty optimistic terms. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't always feel so rational. <laughs> Not always, no. Uh, but it definitely has had an, an impact. It teaches you to be very patient. It's almost impossible to do research, to be engaged in science and do it quickly. Everything takes a long time. I find that when I'm talking to people who are not scientists, they sometimes take offense at, at the way that I and other people respond when we're talking about an issue. How so? It, it Sometimes it has to do specifically with the way we are trained to deal with questions and information. The way that we deal with things in science is to rely on information, on data, on evidence, on facts. And you lay your information out where everybody can see it and evaluate it, and you compare different sets of data that come from different people. And as a community, in a sense, together, you come to a conclusion about the best interpretation that you can make at a given time. So the way that science works is that we are critical, skeptical about everything, constructively critical, constructively skeptical, but you don't accept anything as final and finished. Everything is subject to reinvestigation. By laying things out that way in detail, people sometimes will interpret that as being aggressive or pushy or trying to overwhelm them or something of that sort. 
Well, that's one of the things that I find admirable about science. I feel like there's a lot of pressure on people, especially people in prominent positions, elected officials or famous people, that once they are recorded as believing X, they have to believe X till the day they die, despite all the additional evidence or the change of culture, or that we simply know more about that issue than we knew at the time that they first made that statement. And there seems to be this great unwillingness sometimes on the part of the public to let people change their minds, whereas I perceive the changing of one's mind in response to facts and knowledge to be a positive. Yeah. And and yes, I, I agree with that completely. It's hard for scientists sometimes to say, I, I, I got that one wrong. And it, it can be hard um, in science that way. Um, so peer review in science is a really critical part of of the process. Can you say what peer review is? Well, essentially, people who are engaged in research on some particular field of science evaluate each other's data constantly. We don't do things in isolation. It's a community of people, by and large, working together reasonably well, but there can be competition that, that develops too. So a competitor might view your be one of the peer reviewers of your paper sure. for publication. Absolutely. So the reason why we submit papers for publication is partly to get the feedback from other members of the community. And we do it anonymously so that you can say your piece and not have the person be personally offended by offering criticism. That feedback is a really critical part of the scientific endeavor. And it's not just what happens when you submit the paper, but five years later, or one year later, or 10 years later, somebody will come back and say, you know, this was a really great paper at the time, but we know now that it only got half the picture, that there was a lot that was missed here. Uh, I often criticize my own papers. It's not at all unusual for people as they go through their career to find themselves saying, gee, this is what we knew at that point. This, this was the information we had available. That is not what we know now. We, we know much more. We have a much better way of interpreting this. Do you find that frustrating that that practice doesn't exist in other realms? Especially, I mean, you're in a, a role at the Field Museum. You have a leadership role. I'm sure you're probably in the community that you live in, involved in uh, committees and things that are working on other issues. Uh, is it sometimes a frustration that that uh, willingness to change one's mind um, in the face of new information doesn't always exist in the other other parts of our society? Yeah. Well, the, the tendency for people to simply make assertions and to carry an argument by force of personality is very much contrary to the way that science should work and usually does work. Not always, but but usually not. Um, in a lot of other human endeavors, it's the force of personality that carries the day, and I don't like that. So you've used that process of peer review often, and you overturn this major theory about the greatest diversity of species being in the lowlands, and you publish new species discoveries in scientific journals. In the course of our work on Luzon Island, we doubled the number of species of native non-flying mammals. We went from 28 to 56. 
that's what motivated you to suddenly start going year after year to these isolated mountains and finding this incredible abundance. I saw in the book that you wrote that described uh, those mountains as being sky islands. Mm -hmm. Can you describe what you meant by that? So it's a term that was first suggested for the mountains in the southwestern United States. If you drive across the desert out there, um, you see uh, often what you see initially is a mass of clouds off in the distance. And as you get closer, you realize that there's a mountain range underneath that set of clouds. As you g drive up into the mountains, you go from desert to kind of dry pine forest and then into wetter pine forest, and then into spruce and fir forest. And you may make it all, if it's high enough, all the way up into alpine meadows. So you have these isolated patches of very distinctive habitat up on top of the mountains. And they really look as though they're up there in the sky. So the kind of mammals that you've discovered, what kind of mammals are they? So we're large as mammals go. So we think about other large mammals, mostly lions and tigers and bears. Most mammals are small. Most mammals are either bats or mice or shrews. You're right. I don't think that's what immediately pops into people's minds when sure. they think about uh, mammals, right? So not surprisingly, most of the things that we're finding are bats or mice or shrews. They're little things. So I was lucky enough to go on a collecting trip with you to Mount Amoyao in the uh, northern part of Luzon. Mm -hmm. I recently read in your book, in The Mammals of Luzon, that the data collected on that trip showed Mount Amoyao is in the top three sites for greatest mammal diversity. That's fascinating. A lot of what we do is exploration and discovery. I think maybe it surprises some people that that's still so much part of science, but it really is. So one of the things that I like about this kind of work is that in a way, it runs the opposite way that kids are often taught about how to do science. So what they're often told is you pick a project, a topic, and you study it, and you pick a piece of it, and you look at it in progressively finer and finer and finer detail. Yes, there's a reductive quality to it of looking at the small, smaller and smaller piece. And in a sense, what you're doing is putting it under a microscope and looking at it in finer and finer detail uh, as you go along. What I like is running the microscope in the opposite direction and looking at broader and broader spheres of context. So I like asking questions about, well, the Philippines is part of the ring of fire. It's volcanic in origin. How does its geological history influence the extent of the biological diversity that we've seen? How does the fact that it is one of the largest archipelagos of islands in the world contribute to all of this? The islands in the Philippines are, so far as I know, the oldest oceanic islands in the world. They're five or six times older than the Hawaiian Islands, for example. Well, how does the age of the islands play into this story? I like bringing in more and more diverse questions rather than looking at it in finer and finer detail on a single question. 
So you're sort of a synthesizer of all of this yes. information rather than trying to focus on a problem. How do I make that small enough that I can really understand one small part of it very, very well, which is often a direction that science moves? It does. It moves in that direction mostly when there have been a lot of people working on the, on the issue for a long time and a lot is known so that you can focus on a very narrow question. But an awful lot of science is involved in exploration and discovery. We're starting the process, not trying to finish it. And that's the part of science that appeals to me. Larry, thank you so much for coming in. It's been my pleasure. I hope this conversation with Larry Heaney inspires you to question conventional thinking in your own profession and see things with a fresh eye. Next week on Shape of the World, why some people care a lot about a very special thistle. It's a thistle and it's about to go extinct. You know, what is it doing so differently from the thistles that are weeds? Until then, enjoy the diversity of life all around you. The Shape of the World is about nature and people and the world we share. It's a production of the Office of Modern Composition, a business that creates compositions and fosters composers. If you have a story to tell, the Office of Modern Composition can help. They can go all DIY and teach you how to write and produce the story yourself, or they'll do the whole thing for you. Either way, you will end up with a permanent archival piece that presents your ideas and experiences. The Shape of the World is produced in the vital, vigorous, and beautiful metropolis of Chicago in the prairie state of Illinois. You can find Shape of the World on Facebook and Instagram, and on the website, shapeoftheworldshow.com. There, you'll find photos of Mount Amuyao, a link to the book Larry co-authored, The Mammals of Luzon, a drawing of Larry by the artist Rose Curley, and much more. The producer of The Shape of the World is Isabel Vasquez. The theme music is composed and performed by Brad Wood. Thank you to today's guest, Dr. Lawrence Heaney, and the Field Museum of Natural History.